Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Walter Murch, ACE. Murch has been nominated and has won dozens of awards, including Ace Eddie's, Oscars, BAFTAs, and Emmys. His IMDb page lists 66 films over six plus decades. Previously, we talked about his current project, the documentary Coup 53, and then in a separate conversation, we discussed follow-up questions that I had about things he'd posited in his books In the Blink of an Eye and his book with Michael Ondatya called The Conversations, and another conversation of his where we discussed five films that he suggested that I watch. In this final conversation with Merch, we'll wrap things up with questions asked by Art of the Cut readers from Blue Collar Post Collective. If you've never heard of them, they're a great social group of editors who do networking and educational events on both coasts and even London, I believe. I know them best through the Blue Collar Post Collective Facebook page, which is where I asked if anyone had questions for Merch. I got them to record their questions and I edited them into the interview after the fact, so you'll still hear bits and pieces of me throughout. So let's get to our first guest question for Walter Murch. Hi, Mr. Murch. My name is Angelica Gonzalez. In your book, In the Blink of an Eye, you talk about a cut happening in relation to the audience blinking or the actor on screen blinking. Does the cut happen on the blink or before the blink? My name is Sarah Beth Shapiro, and I have a similar question. Directors that I work with often reference In the Blink of an Eye to encourage me to cut on the blink. I have to say that I have an aversion to seeing a blink on screen near an edit. My interpretation is that the cut replaces the blink, but that you don't have them both. Could you please clarify your discussion of using blinks as cutting points? She and I both feel like when you cut on an actual blink... It's terrible. It's terrible. So right. can no, you talk... Just, just before the blink. I mean, this is all supposing it's that... Theor- it's theoretical, right? Right. Uh, I mean, the main takeaway from the whole idea of the blink is that the human blink, and I think the animal blink as well, the vertebrate blink, uh, it's sort of the save-to-disc moment where a thought has reached a certain level of understanding and gunk, you know, that little sound that the disc makes when it's, you're saving something to disc. It's the I get it moment. Um, you're, you're trying with the blink to articulate, to uh, render grammatical a constant stream, to, to insert semicolons and commas and periods into a continuous stream of thought. If an actor is d- into the character, as Gene Hackman definitely was when he was playing Harry Call, those blink moments are solid because he's thinking what the character is thinking or thoughts that are parallel to what the character is thinking. They're the right rhythm. He's not thinking, am I double parked? Or 
what does the director think of my performance? Or who's that beautiful girl over there? <clears throat> or what's for dinner? And in, that, in those cases, the blinks would be incoherent. They would fall at awkward moments in the talk. You can see this when you look at politicians giving interviews. Uh, their blink rate is usually quite high. The record is uh, <clears throat> the guy who ran the NSA in this country, uh, and his blink rate is 150 blinks per minute, which is more than two blinks a second. I mean, just try to do that sometime. It's a, it was astounding. <laughs> so uh, cut while the actor or the character is blinking is not a good thing because it looks like how it feels when you get something in your eye, that kind of twitchy feeling. As you feel it, if, if everything is lining up, you'll find that the point at which you decide to cut is probably a frame or two before the actor actually does the blink. And if you, that, that's exactly there are, my take. There are some times when, you, for dramatic reasons, you would want to cut right after the blink. If mm -hmm. you want to go, the blink, yeah. you know, uh, the character kind of going, what was that? Yeah. Then you let the character blink and then cut. And that gives a little stutter, which goes along with surprise. I was at a neurological conference in Spain in October, and some neurologists in Barcelona had read In the Blink of an Eye and had studied blinking scientifically and had come to these same conclusions about it. And so they asked me to come and talk to the audience about these things. But what, what is mysterious still, they, they didn't have the answer, is does the interruption of the visual stream help to articulate the thoughts? In other words, the insertion of those 200 milliseconds of black in the stream of data coming in, it does that, is that a, is not the blink, a crutch. Is the blink causal? You're right, is it causal, exactly. Does that help, or is the blink just an inevitable side effect of the, the separation that's already happening? That mm -hmm. it, the blink, in a sense, is a reflex action uh, to, to an event that's happening inside the brain. I don't know the answer to that. I, my hunch is that it's the second, but I, don't, I would love to know uh, what the answer is. But to the woman who says her director makes her cut on blinks, you, Walter Murch, is telling her no. no yeah, <laughs> do not cut while the eyelid is going down. Unless um, you want to sure. create the feeling of something Right. Irritating in your eye. That, yeah, you know, that's maybe perfect. that's what you want to do. My name is Theo Maximilian Goebel. Mr. Merch, I'm really impressed that you don't limit yourself to scripted films. I've always wondered if you like to also work on docs to push yourself creatively. What's the value of switching between docs and narrative? Uh, the editor of the film is writing the story, especially a doc like Coup 53 or like Particle Fever that are not a script-based documentary. Hi, Robert Mann here. What are the important personal traits you look for in a colleague? Um, compatibility, but that covers a <laughs> multitude. Um, if, if you're at all compatible and you're working together on the film and you're good people and you're working hard, you will find that synchronicity will evolve spontaneously and you'll 
thinking, be thinking each other's thoughts. You'll be, be in, in each other's pockets. You can, you can re-edit something that the other person edited, and it's all transparent and vice versa. You I talked mean, about that, that in Apocalypse Now. That's what I found. You felt like it was. Uh, no, I, I like working with multiple editors. It, it's a, you know, a very convivial way to work. I'm happy to work the other way as well. But uh, they say, I, I don't have personal experience of this, but they say that women who live together wind up having their periods at the same time. It's mm -hmm. kind of the equivalent of that. Yeah, I think that that's been disproven. I think I'm it has sure. too, yeah. but it's a, it's a myth that we will use. Yeah, no, it's a useful myth. Hello, my name is Jantanase. Um, did your editing vision or narrative taste change throughout the years? Maybe when you move from editing film to cutting digitally? No, I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Stay the same. Yeah. Um, Tom Trainer says standing versus sitting while editing. Still doing that? Standing. Yeah, I'm a stander too. Mm -hmm. But I love the example in your book that said, have you ever seen a surgeon sitting? Right. <laughs> or a conductor. Right, conductor, yeah. There's probably plenty. Or a cook. Of, yeah, most violinists, you know, when they're performing or singers. Well, I think, I mean, the thing that unites cooks and surgeons and conductors is that all of them are highly time-dependent jobs. You have to have a very strong sense of time if you're a surgeon or a conductor or a cook. And editing is all about time. Creative work that doesn't involve time, like painting or writing, you, you can sit to do it because it doesn't, you don't have to have that kinesthetic sense of the passing seconds. I mean, there are great editors who sit to do mm -hmm. what they do. Yeah. I'm, I'm a proselytizer, but uh, I'm not a, a fanatic. <laughs> Hi, Walter. My name's Mark Wheelodge, a colorist in L.A. What do you think of the strengths and weaknesses of the current NLEs, Avid, Premiere Pro, Final Cut Pro 10, and Resolve, and what are you using today? I'm, I'm using Premiere. Uh, I haven't used Resolve. I heard good things about it. I've, I've heard good things about the evolution of F Final Cut. Uh, since the the great the shift back in 2011. Mm -hmm. They're uh, ultimately what will happen to NLEs is what happened to automobiles. That in the early days of automotive, you had steam cars, you had electric cars, you had diesel cars, you had gasoline cars. Every car manufacturer had a different operating system. Ford cars in the early days didn't have brakes. You somehow used the clutch in order to stop. I don't understand it. Some didn't have steering wheels. They had tillers, and the pedals were in different places. Now, you They're, you know go fly to an airport, and they don't ask you what brand. Of, they just say medium, large size, whatever, and you know that you sit behind the wheel and the operating system is going to work. You're going to figure it out. Yeah, so that's that things will go there. They're not quite there yet because it's much more complicated than um, driving a car. Hello, Mr. Merch. This is Paul Peltekian. My question for you today is, how do you find your creative motivation when you're working on a troubled scene or if you're just not feeling 100% mentally or physically that day? Do you just power through the edit session or do you put your focus on other aspects of the process that make more sense to you? Other aspects? 
You just if you're having a problem, um, it's either because of you or because of something inherent in the material and the interface between the two. And so you, what that means is you have to let your unconscious mind find the solution. If you hammer away at it, you're you're over articulating the conscious decisions, and so just back off. You know, go do something else, do some database work, or edit another scene, or go for a walk, or you know, call it a day and sleep on it. But you know, you you have to persist up to a point, but past a certain point, it becomes um, contradictory. You know, it it doesn't help anymore. So let let the the un- you'll get an idea in the shower the next morning. You know, there it is. You know, I, now I know what to do. Hi, Mr. Merch. My name is Aidan Johnston, and I was wondering, do you have any editing pet peeves? Um, for example, you mentioned that you don't like cutting on action. Yeah, I mean, that's not a peeve. No. That, that's, mm-hmm. I don't mind it when other people do it. It's a peeve only if they think it's doing something that it's not doing, or vice versa. The, the genesis of it is, in the early days of editing, the, there was a fear that audiences would not accept a cut from one shot to another. Mm-hmm. And the very first film that Edwin Porter did, The Life of an American Fireman, they're, they're, the cuts are four-frame dissolves. We were used to cuts in the 19th century at Magic Lantern shows. They had dual-barreled Magic Lanterns, so mm-hmm. you could switch from one slide to the other, but they did it via a dissolve. So you would turn... Uh, the shutter down on one and open the shutter on the other one. So people were used to that sort of transition from Mm. shot to shot. And the idea in film early on was, ooh, can we do this? And eventually people realized, yes, you can, and and people don't get seasick watching, Mm. watching it. But using matching action unthinkingly, just this is what we have to do, uh, free yourself of that uh, obligation. You know, I cut on matching action when it's appropriate, but I don't do it all the time. And I don't think it achieves what you think it achieves, which is here's a, a hand that moves through so many degrees to a cut point and then completes the action in the incoming shot. Well, as soon as a hand starts to move, the audience's brain thinks, oh, something's happening. And right at the moment, a couple of frames in, where you think, oh, there's a hand is moving, then there's a cut, which is a kind of a smack to the head that interrupts that, and then you have to find that motion on the other side of it. Mm. So there is a kind of stutter to it, uh, even though the original thinking was that that motion would sort of be like we were talking about prelapse, that it sort of blows some smoke across the cut. So it's a topic for discussion. We'll be back in a moment with members of Blue Collar Post Collective interviewing Walter Murch. Let's face it, we always need more storage for our media and projects, but sometimes having storage isn't enough because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. 
Every system comes with built-in software so you can search, tag, and preview all your storage. Backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected. And integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, Final Cut Pro 10, all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off of a new EVO system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. And now, back to the Blue Collar Post Collective, Art of the Cut interview with Walter Murch. My name's Caleb Thomas. Um, Mr. Murch, you are known for your creativity, for your technique, for your deep love and insight into the craft of editing and filmmaking. I would assume that those things alone are not enough to enjoy the success and longevity that you have in this industry. So my question is, how do you conduct an edit session with directors, producers, studio executives? What's your approach to your collaboration with these various people? One of my daughters is a makeup artist, and that's her point of view about makeup, which is 50% of the job is doing the right makeup. 50% is getting along with people and getting a grumpy actor at 5 o'clock in the morning and getting them ready to be the character that they are going to be and interfacing with the director and being a pleasant person. Mm -hmm. It's just film is all about collaboration with other people in an intensely artistic intensely intense uh, work where dozens and hundreds of people are all trying to make this thing happen. And so you have to integrate yourself into that system. You mentioned in the conversation, I think, about how an editor has to think about who he's talking to and when he's talking to that person. Um, right. Producer or whatever, you don't want to tell the producer, oh my gosh, this, sh this scene is terrible, right. you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's one of the reasons I think there is very little literature, or there has been. It, it's changing now, but uh, editors are notoriously uh, closed-mouthed about what they do because they're kind of like the priest in the confessional in the sense that they see the, the problems and they see people who are tired and disgruntled and euphoric and all different kinds of emotional states. And discretion is very important to, to what we do. My name is Mark Aloha. You gave a talk a few years ago at SF Cutters about getting fired from the film Tomorrowland. If you wouldn't mind discussing it, what happened and how did you recover? Definitely, it gets your attention. There's a, there's a Chinese a phrase in Chinese from Sun Tzu, the general, mm -hmm. who says, under certain conditions, kill the chicken to scare the monkey. <laughs> um, and in this case, were I you, think... Were the, you the chicken and the, the director was the, the monkey? The studio had the gun and I was the chicken and Brad was the monkey. <laughs> they wanted to say, this is serious. We, we think this film is in problem. There was more to it than that. It, I, I, I had lunch with Brad a couple of months ago, and I said, what happened? You know, and he said, here's the deal. They said, either uh, 
moved the whole film down to Los Angeles. We were editing up at Skywalker. Mm -hmm. And so we can come and go. And Brad did not want to do that. Or uh, get rid of Walter and hire somebody that we believe is more suited to the film, whatever mm -hmm. that means. And that's what Brad chose to do. I wonder whether that person was someone that they knew they had either some, like a mole almost. No, I don't think no, so. Don't think no, so. No, I, don't, he, I don't know. He'd, he'd I, cut Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, which is a big yep. success. Yep. It's a long story. The script was 150 pages long. And the studio said, okay, we're greenlighting this, but it's going to be two hours long, right? So there's 30 pages there at least that you're going to shoot, that you're going to chuck from the beginning. And it's that kind of a film. And it struggled against that headwind, as I think I was the sacrificial victim uh, to that process. And, you know, as, as we know, that reflex of fire the editor is something that is more common now than it used to be in 20 or 30, 40 years ago. Hey, Mr. Merch, Jesse Gordon here. I was wondering if you could share the mechanics of your process upon receiving a new bin of dailies. How are your bins set up? How do you watch your dailies? And what is your approach to cutting a scene from scratch? Well, uh, one thing we didn't talk about in terms of the transition from analog to digital is that there is no longer a screening of dailies in a, a collective sense. Oh, yeah, communal, communal screening, yeah. Um, and that's, for me, that's the biggest shift in the transition from analog to digital. Forget the technical stuff, that's all solvable, it's evolving very fast, it's, there have been problems in the past which are being overcome, you know, the, the look of film and all that kind of stuff, but we're, we're in the digital world, despite Christopher Nolan and other diehards, film will disappear. You know, it's, not, it's, it's not gonna be with us. Digital is where we are. But the side effect of that is that every shoot has six plasma screens all over the set. Every department has its own screen. Makeup, uh, costume, production design, camera. You know. And so they see what the camera is seeing as it gets shot. And the impression at the end of the day is we've seen it. You haven't really seen it <laughs> you, because you saw it as it was happening, but you're working on the film, and so you're thinking about lots of other th things as you watch what's happening. Yes, of course, you've seen part of it, but the experience of sitting all heads of departments in a room like this and watching an hour or more of dailies where everyone is picking up the vibrations of everybody else. The director, obviously, is feeling something, and people are picking that up. But by the same token, the director is picking up what the other people are emanating. And there's people talk, and there's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, getting back to that image, it's a way of us all pickling ourselves in the juice of the film. And that's gone now, except that we send the dailies via pics or whatever to the studio and the studio watches it. And that ironically gives them even more power because they've seen the dailies the way dailies are supposed to be seen and we haven't. 
collectively. And so we're, you know, there's that old uh, rule of, you know, if you bind together, you stick together. And the experience of daily, as tired as everyone is, at the end of the day or at lunch, they're, you know, distracted. It's a, it's an, it's a binding experience. We're all in this together. We all see this. The seeing of this, of what we shot yesterday, informs what we're doing today in ways that we can't even articulate ourselves consciously. And that's dissipated. Uh, I never participated in one of those on film. Did you actually look at all of the dailies in those? We looked sessions? at all the, the, not the B negative. We, all of the circle takes. All the circle takes. All the prints. Yeah, and there was no fast forward, so you just had to, you know, look at it all. And f as I said earlier, Fred Zinnemann was the most, uh, brutal is not the right word, but decisive. Mm. You know, his, his film uh, shot for 80 days, but printed maybe 180,000 feet of 35 millimeter film, 30 hours or something. So dailies were 20 minutes mm. you know, to look at. We have to get back to what is your approach? You sit down, you look at dailies in the Abbott or in the in premiere, and right. then what happens? So I watch the dailies uh, because there is no B negative. I get the whole shebang, and um, I have fast forward, and I know that there is a distinction between A and B. So when I come up with a B, I have to make a decision. Am I going to watch this or not? And depending on, you know, is it four hours of dailies or is it an hour of dailies? If it's an hour, I'll watch it all. And I take notes in the dark. I have a laptop with a note program in it, a database that I wrote in FileMaker. And I just free associate as I watch it. You're only going to watch this material for the first time once. once. And so whatever your initial impressions, that's the closest you're ever going to get to how the audience is going to feel when they see this for the first time. And anything that occurs to you at that time, just write it down. Um, it doesn't even have to be, if you can say, a fly just landed on my nose. Write that down because, oh yeah, that was when the, well, I remember that, you know. It helps you to get back to that. And then I build the material into a chem roll, what I call, which mm -hmm. is just continuous yep. as it was when I screened it. And I scan through each setup and drop markers on what I think are uh, key frames that answer the question, why did they shoot this shot? Both in terms of staging and expressions of the actors. Is he angry? You know, find the angry moment. Is she sad? Find the sad moment. Is there a real shift in the staging? The actors move all kinds of different ways. You know, take the four, take four pictures to show each of those moments. Um, they get printed up on sheets of paper. You know, I get about 25 images on a 8 by 11. And um, then I print out the notes that I took and uh, read through them with a highlighter. And, oh yeah, that was really great. 
anything that really stuck out or anything that's you know avoid at all costs this is a I make that green it just happens to be there's, there's no value other than orange and green are kind of opposite colors yep, yep. so and I, then I try to um, get as much of the orange in the first assembly as possible. I have the pictures on the wall. I decide what's the first shot. It's usually pretty obvious where, where the director wants to begin the scene because of how it's shot. So, okay, that's how I'm going to begin. And I think I want to cut there. Then, if that's the frame I'm going out on, now I look at the wall of images. What frame jumps out at me as, choose me. You know, it's like a class full of people. Uh, Raising their hand. And, okay, that's, uh, what is that? Oh, that's uh, 38 take four. Now I look at the notes. 38 take four. Oh, there's an orange here. Oh, really good. Okay, so I get 38 take four and line it up and say, well, we could cut. I've chosen the end frame. Where's a good beginning frame for this shot? And there I will scrub. Um, okay, right there. And link them up, run it, and... Just do that because, as you again. said, that juxtaposition that where one frame goes to another frame, the next shot right. is a critical. There's power in that. Absolutely, juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah. the the uh, w- what I noted when I was doing this on film, uh, meaning I was selecting frames to print by using a sharpie and marking the. The side of the film? The side of the film with a little black bar. And in the end, when I was preparing the film for negative cutting, I looked, oh, look, unbeknownst to me, many of the shots that I used to either end or begin had a little black bar on them because they're kind of iconic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's generally true of how we perceive things. You're, You're watching a continuous stream of action, and then... If the editor has chosen correctly, there's a semi-iconic image, something that took your attention, the editor's, I'm going to print this as a still uh, because of the expression on the face or whatever it is. And at that point, there's a cut. When the audience sees this, they're aware of the cut, and the brain says, something just happened. There's a big shift. I will remember the outgoing frame before this transition and I will remember the incoming frame. And to me, that's, that's the uh, kind of the, the mark of Cain about uh, <laughs> cutting on action, uh, matching action mm. is that that is not, when somebody begins to move their hand, that's not an. There's nothing iconic about that. In fact, it's chosen for exactly the opposite reason. It's chosen because it's in neutral. It's yeah. like shifting a gear between one image and the other. It's essentially dissolved. No, what I'm talking about is not a hundred percent of the time. But it, if if a film has enough of this, there are these moments that get sort of burned into the audience. And the amazing thing about film is that it's motion pictures. 
But when we remember the film later on, we don't remember motion at all. We remember how that person looked at the moment. You know, mm. uh, we remember in still images, and that's the moment of the cut is is a way of uh, turning that cut into a branding iron that helps that that image get remembered significantly. On that iconic thought, right. I'm going to say thank you so sure. much for uh, yeah. spending time with uh, the, my readers and audience and with me. I am Absolutely. privileged to have had a chance yeah, yeah. to talk to you. Thank you, Walter. Sure. For more editing wisdom from more than 200 of the world's top editors, check out ProVideoCoalition.com or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Walter Murch, ACE, and to the curious members at Blue Collar Post Collective. Next week, my discussion with the recent winners of the Ace Eddie Awards continues with Dan Crinian, who called in from London to discuss his Ace Eddie win for Killing Eve. Well, he didn't kill her, but you, you get it. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and let's keep the conversation going. What do you have to say about the topics discussed today? <laughs>